0: Snap production. Cheers. Market the SP. The ISX stocks. This is the Motley Full Money Mailbag.
1: Welcome to Motley Full Money, our very special Sunday mailbag edition. I, of course, am Scott Phillips, and he, of course, is Andrew Page. How are you, mate? Good morning. I'm very well. Very well. Good to hear you it. So? You are, of course, the founder and managing director of Strawman.com, a something, something, something. What'd you call it again? We are a private online investment club. Go to strawman.com and find out more. If you want to find out about The Motley Fool, go to fool.com.au. Those ads out of the way. Mate, should we get into some mailbag? Let's do it.
0: Some Love the mailbag episode. Yeah,
1: me too, me too. Uh, we like our Friday episodes, but just something cool about getting a chance to hear what our listeners want to hear us talk about and be able to respond to it. So here we go. Well, this is interesting. Hi, Scott and Andrew. Thanks for the weekly pod. This, oh, this is from Zed, by the way, one of my favourite monikers thus far. Just Zed. I have no idea who Zed is. So Zed says, Hi Scott and Andrew. Thanks for the weekly pod. You're doing a great job. I've learned a lot from stocks, share market and financials in general. The podcast not only provides invaluable background information about what is happening in the financial world, but sometimes we get Andrew's rants as well. And <laughs> I thought he said
0: the ads were out of the way.
1: <laughs> and that serves a stress relief for everybody. Yeah, I, I don't know, mate. I, I can't control what our <laughs> listeners think. Oh, also, a special thanks to Andrew, who is a real gentleman. He might know what I refer to. Oh. I have to ask. I No. Okay, interesting. The reason I'm writing to you is to ask your opinion about my financial situation as a relatively fresh migrant, now an Australian citizen. Congratulations on your Australian citizenship. That's very cool. Um, I know you cannot give personal financial advice, Zed says, but it would be nice to hear your thoughts. I suspect there are a lot of other people in my shoes too. As a new Australian, being 40 years old, I have a very small amount in my super account. I'm afraid I will not be able to catch up with others already accumulating super for 20 plus years. This super situation is even more devastating for my wife, who only worked for a very short time before having kids. And she's a stay at home mum in the moment. I am doing salary sacrifice as much as I can, but that does not help my wife much. To be honest, having kids just adds to my anxiety as I want to provide them with a possibility for a good education and, of course, support them as much as I can. I started investing just before the pandemic. That worked out quite well. Well done. Although I only invested small amounts as I was afraid of losing any money. I know I was probably very lucky, in brackets, trying not to feed my ego, and my portfolio is still up, but overall not by a big amount. I only invested in small cap stocks in minimum amounts. As I was desperately trying to avoid losing money, I've partly sold some of my good-performing tech shares at the end of last year. Thanks for Scott's advice that someone who is not comfortable with looking at their portfolio sinking into the red should sell. Taking out the profit, that equals the initial investment. So now, even if my portfolio goes to zero, I won't lose anything. Although, I also know that I probably robbed my future self. So from now on, I will not sell anything from my portfolio, whatever happens. My thinking is that the only chance for us to support ourselves at pension age if I manage to buy and hold some small cap companies that turn to multi-baggers over the long term? Or shall I start investing small amounts into ETFs and the compounding is going to do the rest? I know it depends on the invested amount, says Zed. I try to calculate compounding with very small amounts I could contribute in the next few years while well, my wife is not working, but the numbers are disappointingly small, so I have not started doing that yet. Please let me know your opinion. Am I on the right track or is there a better strategy to follow? Sorry for the long email. Thanks and full on from Zed that's such a great question mate and such a, a a really specific set of circumstances that we can't as you know Zed give personal advice and thanks for acknowledging that um, but it's a, but it's a good question mate so 40 years old not much super just started investing one income want to help out the kids it's kind of a really kind of crucial crossroads in in a, in a life alone a financial life right it's that sense of what do i do f- that's best for myself. My wife is not working, hasn't got much super for my kids. Uh, and then the investing kind of overlay of, you know, I'm kind of freaking out about losing money here and that it's suck if I lost money. So now what do I do? So much good stuff there in the question. What would you say generally to Zed?
0: Yeah, yeah. And apologies, Zed, if I, I I missed the uh, reference there. Be, if it's any consolation, I can't remember what I had for breakfast. Tends, <laughs> tends to, so I do apologise for that. But um, uh Firstly, you've got to work with what you've got. Every one of mm. us is in a different situation. There'll be people out there who inherited ten million dollars off a yeah. long lost, lost uncle, and there'll be other people out there, you know, barely able to save fifty bucks. So you've yep. you, you've got to work with what you've got. Um, and I, I would say one of the things that stood out in the question there was, well, you know, with given my situation, do I need to sort mm. of chase these multi-baggers? And i I'd, yeah. I'd be very careful with that. I get the urgency, um, but at the same time, the the greater the risk you take – so there's this old saying, you know, risk equals reward in in investing. So in other words, the greater the risk you take, the greater the chance for your reward. Um, uh, You could buy a really dodgy crypto coin (laughs) uh, and, and 10x your money tomorrow. You know, that's incredibly insane risk, but the upside yeah, is massive. Yeah. Yeah. But but it's not a free lunch. You know, the 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 the, the very way it's framed, like the, the greater the risk you take, the more the chance that you lose it all. So by by sort of trying to chase, and I know this is not what you're uh, you're, you're doing, Zed, but just to make that point, mm-hmm. I would be ca- careful about going up the risk spectrum, as they say. Um, to, 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 try and, to try and get really, really outsized returns. I mean, I look, yeah. I, I definitely uh, play at the riskier end of the market, mm. but I just – and so I'm not saying don't do it. I'm just saying don't do it with with sort of gay abandon <laughs> and be very, mm. be very conscious. You've got to work extra hard sort of in, in that space. The other thing I would say is that at 40, you've still got decades, right, mm-hmm. to retirement. And uh, you can do a lot, even if it is just a broad-based index, contributing what you can, when you can. Letting that compound, maybe it's somewhere around eight to ten to twelve percent, whatever it, the average ends up being, we'll still will still mm-hmm. carry you mm-hmm. a very, very, very long way. Um, uh, and the, the the other thing that stood out in the question as well was, well, I've taken certain money off the table, so I'm now only left with gains. Mm-hmm. And I actually hear this a lot, and and I actually would urge caution with that way of thinking. It's very easy. So I've got nice round number, I've got ten thousand dollars to invest. Some reason I double it. I take my $10,000 out and now I've got 10,000 quote unquote play money left in the market. Yep. And the inference there, and it's not deliberate, but the inference there is that, well, it doesn't really matter what happens to that. Mm. I've, I've got my initial investment back. This is, this is all gain. So even if it goes to zero, I'm still okay. That's, that's true to an extent, but the way I would look at it is no, you've got $20,000 now. Mm-hmm. And, and, and one of the challenges with long-term investing is scaling up your thinking as your wealth grows. We, we touched on this a few weeks ago. You know, I first sort of started, I'd buy $1,000 worth of shares and it was, you know, it's like most of my life savings. It was terrifying. But, but as, as the portfolio grows, you know, you make larger and larger and larger investments dollar-wise – but probably the percentage allocation hasn't changed and stuff. Like, you've got to yes, shepherd what yes, you have right. right now as best as you possibly can. And I think that once you start having a mindset of "oh, this is only profit, this is only play money," it doesn't matter. I just mm-hmm. think it's it will force you to make more cavalier decisions. And I, I would treat every dollar of of one gains of wins yeah. as as legit, real money that you can take it all out right now. You can double it down all on something else. So you but. but 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 treat it as respectfully as you would of the money that you saved yourself. It, it will mm, it right. will just put you in a better frame of mind. I think.
1: Yep, I think that's I think that's such good advice, mate. Because if you think about so let's say that ten grand, right? And So you can double it, and and you know I'm going to use some really basic boring maths here. But you can double the money every seven years. You get a ten percent return. It just makes yep. my life easy. Yep. So let's say you're forty. Uh, if we go with let's say five doubles, thirty-five years gets you seventy-five, right? Seventy-five. You've doubled your money five times. Mm-hmm. 10 grand becomes 20, then 40, then 80, then $160, $320,000. Using that thinking, as you say, you've got $310,000 of play money and 10 grand of initial capital. Yep. And it, 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 it illustrates, I think, the, the the mistake some people make. And again, I know you're being kind about it and, and, and gentle, and I appreciate that, and we should do that. Um, but for Zed's perspective, by definition, if you're combating at any rate, everything at some point becomes air quotes play money or money you can afford to lose or something else. And I think, as you rightly say, mate, it's not. The right approach, reasonable approach, understand it completely. Like yeah. uh, at least I don't risk that. But realistically, you don't want to be risking if it is a risk. Don't risk three hundred ten thousand dollars because you've got you only put ten grand in when you're seventy-five. Right? That's a long time to wait to risk all that money because somehow it's not real money. We of course know it's real money, and so just be careful. I am impressed though that Zed says uh, he's not going to do that anymore. He's going to, uh, uh, to to keep money in the market, which I think is spectacular. Uh, my bit of feedback, mate. So you've done a fantastic job of, of outlining that. My bit of feedback is. I absolutely love the fact that there's not going to sell anything in future to try and take money off the table in exactly what you've just talked about. That's mm. great. Yep. I would say, uh, just a little asterisk on that, don't hold every single position forever just because you bought it. So think about your portfolio oh, size, don't yes. have money out of the portfolio, but yes. do sell if you have something that's worth selling because there's a better idea or because the business sucks or because valuations go out of control or something else. Oh, so just good keep point. that in mind as well. Yes, excellent. Um, I, I So, Zed, quickly, I agree with Andrew on ETFs. Uh, I've just talked you through what, what can happen between 40 and 75. Now, you're probably going to want money before that. Uh, here's the here's the mistake so many people make about retirement, and this is a really, 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 really important one. If you're fortunate enough to not have to sell your entire portfolio at 65 to fund your life, and frankly, if you do, you're not going to have much of it because you can't – if you've got all that at 65, you're gonna, you know, going and you had to use it because you, you couldn't leave it in the market, by definition, you probably had a couple of years worth of living expenses. So that's – that's a, it's a small end of the spectrum. It's real for some people, but it's at the small end of the spectrum. If you're going to compound your money and if you're going to use some of your portfolio as living expenses in some way, shape or form, either live off the dividends or sell some down, the rest of the money stays in the market while you're retired. And so just because you retire at 65 with a, with a lump sum, I hope most of that lump sum is still in the market at 75 and 85, quite frankly, mm. because if it's growing and you're taking down some of it and you're living some in the market, then your time horizon is actually much, much longer. So yes, at retirement at 65, if that's when you want to retire, or well, I think probably 67 based on your age will probably be retirement age. Um, I get that you want to have enough to be able to say, I'm done at that point and we all do and that's, that's absolutely the right approach. But just give yourself a little bit more time because whatever you don't spend in year one remains compounding. And the same with year two and year three and year four of retirement I'm talking about now. So everything that's- up to, you know, hopefully 75, 80, 85, 90 That continues to compound, even if you are spending some of it or or pulling out dividends or whatever you're doing. So just think about that in terms of the amount of time you've got to compound, and that's to Andrew's point about the EFT thing. I ETF thing, sorry. I wouldn't. um, I I would happily add regular small amounts to ETFs because anything you can put aside now, again, think about that compounding I just talked to you about, will absolutely help. It may not be enough. It may not be as much as you want but it's better than spending it. If, if the alternative is, do I, do I buy a new pair of jeans or I put some money in the market, put it in the market. Because yeah, it's not going to be enormous, but the jeans will wear out in three years' time. The money you've got in the market hopefully is there for 20, 30, 40, 50 years. Yeah. Uh, and so just just be, it might be enough and it might be as much as you want, but just, you know, I wouldn't let that dissuade you from at least getting started. By the way, here's the other bit of advice and, and the other advantage you've got right now. If you're starting with small amounts, it's a great time to make mistakes. So, you know, realistically, you know, the the long-lost uncle with $10 million would be fine. But man, if you're just getting started investing and you're looking at that going, I can invest $10 million now and you mess up with 10% 10 of it, that's going to hurt. Now, you've still got $9 left. It's not the world's biggest problem. But if you're going to make mistakes, do it with small amounts. And so, Mm -hmm. it's a good time to get started. Do some of those things and learn as you go so that when you have the opportunity to add more over time, uh, that you have... That experience under your belt, that's super important. Yeah. Uh, last one, on your wife's account, um, I don't know about your circumstances, you can usually make contributions to a non-working spouse's super account, particularly even tax deductible from memory under a certain or over a certain amount of money. Um, so uh, check the tax laws, speak to your account if you have one, um, just go through your website, look for, I think it's called spouse, look, to, look up spouse contributions anyway, Uh super. And that'll give you some detail. So, again, you might not have that much left over because your wife isn't working and that's the hardest part, right, is when you go down to one income, it's the time you've got least amount of money to aid to a spouse's account. Uh, but that can be a really attractive way to help her and help you both because it's normally tax deductible as well.
0: Yep, yep. So, the, the, the first rule of compounding is don't interrupt it. Right? Yeah. And the second and third and fourth rule, like just don't interrupt it. So, definitely correct, make correct. that point. The other thing I just wanted to emphasise a bit of what mm. you said there as well is that... um there is no sub when it comes to investing. You can read every book in the world. Uh, we have paper money, play money um, portfolios on straw man. Mm-hmm. So you can sign up a free account and trade trade your pants off with a hundred thousand oh, dollars in the play ads money. Were over. You said that's Rover. <laughs> well, I just got to got to put a plug in occasionally. <laughs> but my point is, I'm actually going against against it here a little bit. Is well, we mm. think it's really valuable, but there's there is no substitute for doing it in the real world mm. because yeah. you just you yeah. do not you do not learn the same lessons when it's pay money. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's like I, I'm the world's best. It's very real. Poker very player. Great, and when it comes to yeah. play money, I, <laughs> I, I challenge you. I will beat you. Put real money on the table and I'm I'm awful. I am awful. That's right. That's so right. yeah, you do you, I think I think this is this is the difference between yeah. those who get re- really great results out of the market and those that don't. Yeah. Is it, the ones that yeah. do do largely because of endurance. They just hang around. And they may keep some mistakes like everyone does. They go through bad periods, like everyone does, mm-hmm. but they do it. And they, they learn those mistakes early and they don't make them again. That's a great thing. The longer you stick at this, you kind of get to a point where you've made all the big mistakes and it sucked and you've lost money. But, you know, the the, the real error in investing is is not making mistakes because that's just par for the course. It's repeating the same mistakes. So if all you can do is just not do that, you you just set yourself up so wonderfully well. So, yeah, yeah.
1: stick at it. like it. Mate, let's go to a question from Lee. Lee says, Hi, Scott and Andrew. Love the show and have been a listener since mid-21. Have missed very few since. All right, you always go back and listen. You always go back, Lee. Uh, apologies in advance if you've answered this question previously. Commentators, oh, this is interesting. I've given out my comment on Friday. Commentators and analysts such as yourselves often value a company based on annual revenue, i.e. 20 times revenue. But sometimes they value a business on EBIT, i.e. 10 times EBIT sometimes EBITDA, et cetera. Mm -hmm. My question is, is there a type of business or industry or vertical that lends itself to a particular method of valuation? Mm. I understand some growth companies are not yet making money, so valuing it on a profit metric is not relevant. However, if you have a company that is a service business or a retailer or a miner, is one method of valuation more relevant than the others? Cheers, Lee. (sighs) I did rant a little bit about this on price to sales, but the general question is a better one than my rant because it's what... When and how? Oh, God, I love it.
0: It's just such a brilliant question. There is no one-size-fits-all approach, mm. that, that's mm. for sure. Um, I, I would say this, though, like the, the, the good thing about the concept of discounted cash flow, let's not get into the maths and the rest of it, yes. but the, the <laughs> philosophy behind it is so elegant and it, it is so. It's, it's the only valuation approach I think that makes sense. And that's mm. basically saying an asset is just worth what it can generate in the future. Yeah. And every dollar that it makes, that's what it's worth. Now, $10 in the future is worth less than $10 today, so you discount it back and et cetera, mm-hmm. et cetera. Mm-hmm. But that's what it is. So it can be an entirely unprofitable business, but it might be worth legitimately $10 billion. If in yeah. year twenty it just starts gushing cash flow and does for the next hundred years, yeah. So um, whether it's whether it's you know a mining company or a tech company or anything that, that I think that is always sort of true. Mm. But you're right; at different points in time, different approaches will make will make different sense. It's a, it's largely a question of taste, to be honest mm. with you. Mm. I would just say as long as you can sort of rationally support it and it, it does ultimately anchor back on some kind of cash flows. But I mean, kids, I mean, this, I spent a lot of time thinking about this, to be honest. Could, really, what, what is value? I mean, yeah. what is value? What if, I, if I had the Mona Lisa, that's worth something. Yeah. But value the Mona, Mona Lisa for me. Now, mm-hmm. the DCF yeah. people would sort of say, well, if I owned that, I'm sure I could rent that out to an art gallery at X hundred thousand a year. And da, da, da. Right. you'd probably work it out. you probably work it out in a sensible way. And that's probably a sensible way to do it. Mm-hmm. What the market thinks, though, and how the market values, entirely different. And so it it it's it's um, cryptocurrencies. how do you value that? How do you in fact just normal currencies? How do you value mm, a currency? Mm, mm. really, really, really hard stuff um, so yeah i I do like I, so I like the philosophy behind discounted cash flow. And I think all these other multiples are really just heuristics on that. That's the great thing about a yeah. PE, is that. You, and I said before, it's highly limited. It's very, be be aware anyone who relies entirely on the PE ratio. <laughs> but as a heuristic within the right yeah. context, it's yeah. fantastic, and it actually translates. So a high PE just just demands a lot of future cash flows, um, not discounted mm. too severely. So mm. so they, they all have they all have their use. Um, but yeah. It, it depends. It's a, it's a matter of choice. My, my only comment is try and always bring it back to what what cash flow this will generate
1: or could potentially generate. Okay, I'm going to push you a little bit harder here because that's all true. I completely agree with it all. Lees just saying, well, what do I use when? How, how, do you, how do you think about, if you're thinking about a company and you've got all those tools in your toolkit... Are there some rules of thumb you use about well in this situation I use this or in that situation I use that? What 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 sort of businesses are best yeah, for each of those different it's metrics? It's
0: great. Right? I, I, well, I mean, it's such a broad we could spend hours on this. So, we I'll, could. I'll keep it I'll keep <laughs> it won't. brief with two examples. So, let's okay. look at Woolies, for example. Yep. Now, Woolies yep. is a very well-established, very entrenched business. I think personally it'll be around for decades to come. Yep. Um, but it, but it's also, you know, it's it's going to be hard to grow that. I mean, they, mm. they're, they're, if they do move offshore, it's always going to be full of challenges and require a mm. lot of capital and history would suggest it probably wouldn't work out well. <laughs> but the economy will grow, the population will grow, prices will grow, all of those kinds of things. So so I, I can I can reasonably look at that as, as a business that has excess free cash flow and pays out a dividend. Mm. I, yeah. I, I tend to look, this is how I do it with Woolies. I basically say, well, for me, for a business that's probably at best going to grow at sort of 5% long-term, probably a bit lower than that, and I would want a 5% starting yield. Now, you might look at the current price and think you're dreaming because that's miles away. You're <laughs> never going to get it, but that's what I would do. I want a decent yield now, and I want the potential for that dividend to grow at a reasonable rate over time, and I think that's mm-hmm. that's a really neat method for mature dividend-paying stocks. I love it. In fact, I think it's, it's actually proven. It's very simple but very elegant and very powerful. I love it. Nice. Totally useless for another company that, <laughs> that I own that hasn't made any money yet. Um, they've made sales, uh, but there's, there's nothing coming through at the bottom line. In fact, any any money that they do tend to bring in the door, they tend to reinvest it. And they double down on it. So, it's miles away from ever being in, ending up in my pocket. <laughs> so, I can't, I can't use that. It's certainly not a dividend yield-based kind mm, of thing. Mm, so, I, I mm. will tend to sort of say, well, I think they will start making money in five years' time. They'll probably operate at this margin. and. For a company like that, growing like that in an average kind of market environment will probably attract this kind of multiple, mm-hmm. multiply one by the other, discount it back and then you get a rough approximation. And that will actually translate to a, to a rough price to sales or a price to EBITDA or whatever, whatever you want to use. But I have to, I have to do it that way because I've, I've got no earnings or dividends to value it on right now. That's a very I don't, I'm 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 really tempted to keep going but it could just go on <laughs> and on and on but hopefully that's two broad examples and how you might go about it differently. Mm. So how would, I, how would you answer it?
1: Yeah, so look, I think and this I I narrated mean, about this on Friday and I'm I'm glad we got the question from Lee because it, it kind of lets us go a little bit deeper into my rant. Um, to your point about it, so so every every valuation methodology is a well so this <laughs> It's a hard one. I just say you could talk about this for hours. Let me start again. It's hard. Yeah. If you're trying to value a company properly, if you're trying to, every valuation metric, methodology, is based on the idea of those future cash flows you talked about, right? Mm. So what well, what I will say is a lot of a lot of people in the market aren't trying to do that. Yeah. A lot of people in the market are trying to speculate mm. on what it might be worth in a year's time and say, hey, I think I'm going to love the hell out of Woolies in a year's time. Shares now forty dollars, I think it'll be eighty dollars, so I'll buy it just. On that basis, right? Mm. So that's that that's that very common. Crazy, as crazy as that yeah. sounds
0: when you sort of say it out loud, is like really it's silly. that's super it's common. pure it's guesswork. most, and, most and retail yeah. investors do.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So I'm going to assume, Lee, that you are someone who's who wants to value these businesses on an underlying basis. And the only thing you can get from a company is the your purchase price back, hopefully a higher price, i.e. the share price goes up and dividends in the meantime. And that's Andrew's point about the cash flows, right? So you're getting you're getting a regular payment from the company in dividends. And at some point, you can sell the company to someone else or you'll share someone else for a price. And everything – so you have to start with that. If you're going to do valuation seriously, you have to start with that basis. Otherwise, give up and choose your favourite colour and number and tea leaves and roulette wheels. Mm. Once you do that, you're in a position where you're saying, right, what I need to do is estimate the future of this business. I'm not going to say future cash flows, but future of this business in some sort of way – that gives you access to that returned capital in either share price or dividends. Now, Berkshire Hathaway hasn't paid a dividend since 1965. So to Andrew's point about reinvesting dividends, that's completely fine too, because they're using that money to grow the value of the company, making it more used, more valuable because they're buying more stuff with it. And at the very simplest version of that, you can imagine a business that just simply says, Woolies, when it makes its money, I'm not going to um, pay a dividend, I'm just going to put the money in the bank. The company is obviously worth more money by definition because of that, because it has more money. You, know, you get the buildings and the people on the inventory and the cash in the bank, so it's worth more money. So that's kind of the starting point. Everything else then is a version of that. A price-earnings ratio is a way to pick one number and try and estimate how much you'd pay based on the current earnings, assuming that there's some sort of noble growth rate, which Andrew talked about with Woolworths, right? Just mm. where do I start? What do I get? Okay, that's price-earnings. Everything else price to EBITDA, price to EBIT, price to sales, price to whatever you want to choose, is implicitly, even if never stated explicitly, a version of that. And so when I ranted about price to sales, I will half defend the people who use it, only half because I don't deserve the rest of it, (laughs) uh, by saying, if you're buying a business at eight times sales, you're effectively saying, and, and, and the problem is people don't actually explicitly or implicitly do this, but they, they should. You're saying, I think that this business can grow sufficiently at really attractive economics so that at some future point, I'm getting the cash that Andrew just talked about. I'm getting that cash flow from the business. So if I'm paying eight times sales for strawman.com, a wonderful private online investment club, I understand. Uh, <laughs> I'm buying that because I think at some point, okay, well, eight times sales now, but it'll keep growing at a really fast rate and eventually it'll make margins of 20%. So if I do that, okay, okay that's, that's how I get to a number. Yep. And so price to sales is four steps removed from a PE, but it's based on something similar, which is it'll eventually get to a certain size, have a certain amount of profitability and kick out enough cash to make it worth paying the current price. Yep. Now, I think that's a very, very, very long part. And my issue with it, as I said on Friday, is people assume they can answer that question just by saying, oh, eight times is good. Really? Why? And if you can't answer, because I think it will grow at this rate for this long and then be this profitable, then you're wasting your time and you're literally speculating. Even yeah, you think right. You're thinking using a, a logical metric. You, you, so, you're, go on, Andrew. you're 100 right,
0: um, but but you've kind of and given my retort there in that as well, which is mm. let's say you and I are having a conversation. I go, Scott, oh man, I, over the weekend I was reading about this company. It's really great, rah rah rah. Yeah, and and and, and I say, oh, and, and you can buy it on the market now for 10 times sales. Mm. Now that doesn't tell you anything right then, as you rightly say, but at the same time, it it offers all of the questions that you now need to ask. So we're yeah. having this conversation. You're yeah. going, okay, so you obviously think that this is gonna grow very, very rapidly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. And you obviously think that this is this is going to, uh, you know, be cash flow positive in a reasonable point of time. Yes. And you think it's going to be operating at very decent margins. Yes. And you think it's going to maintain a decent growth <laughs> runway at that point in time. Yeah. But do you know what I mean? It's like, well, yes. No, and totally. if the, if the yeah. answer to all of that is yes, yep. then all of a sudden I've just said price to sales at 10 with all that context yes. ma- makes perfect yes. sense. Makes perfect yeah, sense. Exactly. exactly. Your point is if you just say, oh, it's price to sales of 10 and other <laughs> – the average on the market right now happens to be fifteen. There go. That's a very, very different scenario and very, very Correct. useless and well limited on. thinking. So there's, uh, we're not a we're, mate, we're not a million miles away. Um, no, it, not that, at all. It's just you're basically saying don't ever rely on that alone, and which, which you absolutely shouldn't. I'm just sort of yes. saying yeah, it's really limited, but with the right context, it, it can be a useful yes. shorthand.
1: And the more short, the more shorthand the the, the the tool, the bigger the the margin of safety should be. Yes. So yep. if you're saying oh, I would pay eight times sales, not eight and a half times sales. You are you are absolutely not you personally, Andrew. But yeah, people that are kidding themselves—they think that's possible. It's got to be like you know somewhere between five and ten times sales is reasonable. Well, and literally, a, I know that's a massive range, but that's got to be because yeah. the, the the chance that the growth doesn't come in or comes in five years later or two years earlier, or the margins are half or double. You you can't know what the final margins is going to be at all. No, but it you is gotta, literally the you've got to have a big stab in the, you know, stab in the yeah. super
0: dark, right? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. But and it's also worth noticing too. Like you might sort of say, going through that thought exercise, you might say, yeah. Price to sales of five, six, seven, that's all in the Mm -hmm. ballpark. Yep. Well, think of if that company's earning a million dollars in sales. That's <laughs> yes, right. The difference between a five sales five times sales ratio and mm-hmm. a seven times sales ratio is it's 40 percent yeah. difference in yeah. share price.
1: It's massive, correct?
0: It's and and you you sort of started with this idea of ah, oh, I'm being conservative, yeah. six, five, six, <laughs> seven, something like that. And it's yeah, like yeah, yeah, but, yeah. yeah, but that's that's huge. That is a yeah, huge exactly. difference, <laughs> particularly little, going yeah. from price to sales of two to three. That's a fifty percent difference, right? Yeah. So yeah. yes, yes, and, and I guess it's just a, it's a such a great question which is why we're spending so much time mm-hmm. on it but I, I would sort of say to, to finish it up is that don't feel as though you have to settle on a particular method I, we, we had a pitch from one of our members last week and giving us his take on a value of a stock and he had he had three different models up there and then right. he just, and I kind of I kind of and then he sort of settled on something in between so he's my worst case best case and and um, mm-hmm. best guess. Yep. So, so you can do it that way too. Don't feel as though you have to plant your flags. I am valuing this company in this way. It's like, well, yeah. hey, here's, here's here's eight different ways I know how to value a company. Let's let's chuck it. Let's chuck some assumptions into all of these and see what happens. Mm.
1: So it comes out. Yeah.
0: Where I get excited is when I do that exercise for a business, and they all kind of point to value. And you know, that's kind of like my confidence has just gone up a lot because I can actually articulate value by different methods. I don't know which is going to be the right one or which one the market's going to sort of potentially settle on or, or trend towards, but it, it gives me protection under various outcomes. If I do that exercise and one says this is like worth twice as much and the other one says it should be worth 90% less, yeah, okay, more thought is needed.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and that's exactly right. That, and that's why you've got to just understand the metrics. So I will try and answer Lee's question directly. The, the more um understandable and established the business is, the lower down the PL you should start. Yeah. And when I was, what, you know, if you think about a PL, and sales are at the top, point. net profits at the bottom. So if you've got an established known business with a reasonably guessable, assessable, educated guessable, estimatable growth rate, mm. use PE yeah, uh, and, and some sort of ex, expected, expected growth. right? So Andrew's these great example. Um, if you look at a gas pipeline or a telco, even more, Telstra's, Telstra's range of outcomes is so small then you can use their profit because it's a reasonably you know, guessable, accessible basis for starting. If they're not yet profitable at, a, at, a, at an NPAT line, net profit after tax, but they've got some operating profit, then use that, which is normally EBITDA. Mm. Use that and use that as your starting point. Uh, just know the further up the p you go, the bigger your margin of safety and the less certainty you're going to get because so much can happen below that line. EBITDA is earnings before interest, tax, depreciation and amortization. BS those earnings, four, in other words. Well, that's what Charlie Munger calls it. Those four things can really vary massively, and you don't get to have, you don't get the profit before those things. The taxman doesn't say, "Oh, you valued it on on profit for for tax." Okay, don't pay tax then. It's like mm. now you still got to pay that tax, right? Yeah. You got to pay the interest bill to the bank. You've got depreciation. If you buy a, a whack and great machine, and that's the base of your business, seeing it doesn't need to be replaced in five years time yeah. is crazy. So, the further you go up, the bigger the margin of safety and. The, the, just you need to understand it's a much, 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 much less secure basis for valuation. Can yep. still be okay, can still be reasonable. If you bought Amazon at 100 times sales in 2002, you still did an absolutely spectacular job. Mm. But there are businesses that we've talked about on Friday that have fallen 50, 60, 70, 80% in the last mm. three months. Maybe unjustifiably, maybe completely justifiably. But when you can't say, but it's 10 times earnings, that's worth buying. It's like, well, it's still worth something times sales and the profit's still not coming and the market doesn't like them anymore. That's a long way between there and and delivering a bottom line profit, making some money.
0: I wish I wish we lived in a world where I could just say on a podcast like this, I just pay ten times sales and, <laughs>
1: yeah. and
0: you're done. That's right. Yeah, yep. always buy a stock with a P. Run, run, run a simple filter. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Always use a discount. I mean, it just I'm, I'm not being this. This is what makes it so fascinating yep. and interesting. It's you know, and 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 the way that you construe value. No even yeah. if we're using the same model, I mean, Buffett yep. made this point at, at a, a number of AGMs that him and Charlie. Mm-hmm. Will will arrive at very different valuation methods, but but for, for companies they both know well and like, you know, totally. two of the smartest investors on the planet. Mm. It's definitely in the eye of the beholder. So that's that's another yes. thing here. You have to acknowledge that just you know what you think, and maybe you've got really great reasons to think that mm. the market might not ever think that. You know, it's yeah. it's, it's yeah. fascinating.
1: And uh, and also one last one, based on the future, not the past. Yes. So yes, yes, price yes, yes. to past sales, price to past EBITDA price to past earnings it's it's interesting it's a data point it's a starting point but a business is going to double in the next year and a business is going to halve in the next year shouldn't have the same PE yep. shouldn't have the same price to sale shouldn't have the same end. so just just make sure you think about the future of the business and this is Andrew's point about this is where the complexity comes in anyone can say what's the PE for last year it's X okay if it's under whatever buy if everyone's already doing that the opportunity goes away yep. you've got to look forward and say well, what is this business going to be and those who saw a again, going to use Amazon because it's easy those who saw a, a spectacularly big future Amazon I mean, yeah, I'll pay a hundred times sales. Of course I will. Mm. Absolutely. This is going to be huge. Um, others who looked at Enron and said, hey, this looks like a really solid, understandable mm. business that I can happily invest in, got hosed. Uh, neither because they looked at last year's earnings and, and extrapolated, but because they didn't look at the future and say, what comes next? Yep. Yep, yep, yep. What Mate, a great um, question. It's okay. it really, um, yeah, we, and we've done it both for longer than we should have and shorter than we could have because yes. it's just <laughs> it so detailed. So Big nuanced. topic. Uh, one last one actually on this, not just as a, as, a, as a transition. Be wary of people like Andrew was using the example for of saying, this is how you do it. Mm. If you've got one way of doing it, very, very, very unlikely you're going to get it right. So just just be careful about that whole. Yeah. you know if you're in sales, offering certainty is is a great way to make a sale, right? You just should do the, use my black box software, just do this thing, use that formula. Um solve just, my problem. It doesn't work that way. Exactly. Yeah. It doesn't work that way. So, to the man with a hammer, everything looks like a nail.
0: And Love if you it. you know, so if, if that's if, if the price to sales multiple, just to pick one is the way
1: you do it, you're gonna use that for everything. And it's dangerous. Yep. yep. And which is leads least question about when, which is great. So hopefully we've answered that Lee over that over that time. Motley Fool Money. For more, subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash listener. Mate Justin asked a question. He says not to talk about not talk about Kogan directly. Drink. Drink. But from what I gather I don't shares in Kogan. From what I gather, the loss of margins has been impacted by the supply chain costs. With the continuation of COVID and lockdowns, e.g. Hong Kong and the war in Ukraine, should we expect a continuing increase in supply chain costs? And should we expect other businesses to also see an increase in supply chain costs cutting into their margins? are these long-term impacts or do we see an end to it? Great question. That's from Mm. Justin. I love this question, Justin. It's so important on so many different levels because we've talked about last couple of weeks, cost inflation. We've talked about commodities. We've talked about wages in particular. Um, There are a whole lot of cost imposts that are being added to businesses, bottom lines. We talk about pricing power and other things, but Justin's question is a really good one, mate. So there's pricing Mm. power as one solution, but He's kind of saying, look, what, what do we... Should we expect an increase in supply chain costs and are these permanent? How does it impact our investing? Oh, God. I'm going to make you go first. I was, gonna, <laughs> I was hoping you were going to keep going there. I can if you want. Do you want to yeah. go first? Uh, look, I'll give it a quick
0: go. It, all, right, go all, all, I, all I would say is yes. I, I think it it definitely matters. Mm. Um, how long is it going to last? I don't know. I would I would imagine that that we would see a more of a normalisation in the longer term and some of these... Features mm. pass, but I'm mindful that, you know, something else usually comes to replace. Whatever we're worried about now, <laughs> that'll be right. replaced by something else in the future. Yeah. yeah. I, for me, it comes back, I, look, you know, it's the easy answer. It comes back to the businesses that have the best pricing power. Yeah. And it's the businesses that have the less susceptibility to their input costs. Mm. Um, yeah. It, it just, the, the more, the more <laughs> things that are outside of your control, the, the more wary you need to be. So something like Kogan, just to pick that as an example, um, mm. yeah, I, I think I think they're definitely going to feel it. Uh, but then again, you'd also argue that any all their competitors are going to feel it as much as they will as well. So it's a question yeah. of there's going to be some more. Indi- like, is Amazon just going to go cop that on the chin in an attempt mm. for more market grab, um, or will they put the prices up and then give them the green light, Kogan the green light to do it as well? I mm. I don't know. It's one of it's one of the it's one of the uncertainties I, I have, and it's kind of. Part of, part of what sort of stayed my hand on that front
1: mm. I, um, uh, so I think it's worth thinking about the dynamic at play, Justin it's a really great question. The dynamic at play comes down to what the competitive circumstance looks like. and let me let me explain that a little bit. At the moment, I think that most businesses if let, let, let's assume perfect competition, which it never is, but let's assume perfect competition for, for a second. Woolies and Coles let's use those two guys Woolies will sell products for as much as they can regardless of the cost and they'll sell it for as cheap as they have to to make the sale and the overlap of those I used to do pricing in a previous life so I kind of know a little bit about this Uh, the overlap of those two things is what sets the market price and if, if Woolies is charging too much or Coles feels like it can make more money by selling a little bit cheaper and grabbing some customers they'll do it right on the other hand if Coles says, well, are a charge that. I, I can do that too. They'll put the price up. And the, the market finds an equilibrium at an acceptable level of profitability given the consumer decisions or the business customer decisions as to whether or not they should buy from that business. Now, let's assume a scenario where Woolies says, I want to make a 25% gross margin and Cole says, I'm happy with that too. And that's not, a, that's not an unreasonable gross margin for Woolies and Coles. If the costs go up, Woolies are going to do one of two things. Well, three things, I guess. They're either going to put their price up and say cost gone up, price is going up. They're either or they're gonna say to the supplier, Nope, you better put it down, I'm not gonna stock your product, mm-hmm. which is always possible. Mm-hmm. Um uh, or oh, sorry, or they'll eat the margin and say, Well, I wanna I wanna keep this price because it's a price leader, it's a it's a known value item as they call it in the trade, and I wanna be I wanna show people that I'm cheap on this product. So those are the, those are your three scenarios. In each of those situations, there's a different outcome. If Woolies puts its price up, and Cole says, well, I also want to make 25% margin. I'm going to put my price up too. Then you end up with no margin pressure, even though costs have gone up because there is opportunity for price increase. If they eat the margin, then just to your point, there'll be absolutely loss of profit ongoing. Or if they choose not to sell the product, sell something else because they can get a better return on that, either volume or, or margin or both, they'll do that instead. And so my view of, the, of most markets generally is that if prices could be brought down already, they already would be. In other words, while most things are priced in theory at whatever the customer can most bear to pay, the competitive dynamic means that they're they're priced at the minimum margin. I've I've said regularly, one of my favourite lines I've come up with is you're only as profitable as your least rational competitor allows you to be. Mm. Do I think Woolies wants to sell nappies for more? Absolutely. Do do I think they don't because they don't feel like they can because the customer would walk? Absolutely. Absolutely. And so you're kind of in this situation where every, every retailer is already selling products for the highest price they can get away with based on the cost and based on the competition. So the question you're really asking, mate, is what happens to the competition in these, in these scenarios? Because if Kogan or Woolies or Coles, I own Kogan shares, I've said many times, um, if they can't put their price up and have to absorb costs, that's because the competition doesn't allow them to. But I think that's kind of a short-term view because that's already true. Coke would already be charging more for TVs if they thought they'd get away with it or if they thought the the, the financials were, were attracted to do so. Why doesn't Coke charge charge $100 for their TVs? Because they're trying to, A, grab consumers and convince them they're cheap, and B, steal sales from Sony and Panasonic and whoever else in JB Hi-Fi or Harvey Norman. And Harvey Norman shares too. Um, so that's kind of what's already going on. So this is a long way of saying, I think the only risk... Over the medium and long term, for higher supply chain costs, is if it reduces consumer demand. Because I think the cust- the, the retail is going to charge what they have to charge to cover their costs and make a margin. Mm. And if the market was already too competitive to allow that, it'd already be un- unprofitable now. Does that make sense? Am I explaining this well enough, Andrew? Yeah, yeah, so, no, I get it. Yeah. So, so I think you know that they will. They'd already be cheaper if they could. They'd already be more expensive if they could. Mm. They found an equilibrium point with the competition that makes sense in a higher priced cost environment. I think they'll find that same equilibrium. Mm. It might be dislocating on the way to get there. The biggest issue for me is not the supply chain cost hurting margins. My issue is the supply chain cost hurting sales. Mm. That consumers say, I would have bought um, a bottle of tomato sauce for $1.20. I'm not going to pay $1.50. I'm just going to go without. Mm. And that hurts the margin of Woolworths. And again, I talk about cocoa, but it's easier to talk about groceries. That hurts sales overall. So if, if your product ceases to be bought in the same numbers because of higher prices, that's when everyone loses. Mm. And that's what I'd be more concerned about, mate, rather than margins on a retail level. Uh, because I think those margin pressures are already playing out every single day, no matter whether the costs are up or down or different. Because if costs go down, they don't make more margin. They drop their prices. We see mm. it all the time. Woolies have pushed their prices down on their everyday low price program, whatever they're calling it, for years. Mm. Uh, my my Meadowly Margarine is you know 20 cents cheaper than it was in 2018. Mm. Uh, you know they, they push their price down if they can to get volume. The suppliers help fund that. But they're making the margin they think they can make. How's that go, mate?
0: Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Again, I wish we could just give straightforward answers. I know. Yeah. The, well, that's yes, right. Why can Why can we put a man on the moon, but we can't predict the weather? <laughs> you know. Well, the answer is it's hard. It's hard to do that, and th- that's that's the true answer. here. Yep. I, yep. I guess part of what I would do as well, when when faced with this, because there's such, yep. the, it's exactly the right kind of things to ask. Is when faced with this uncertainty. My approach is to well, firstly look for less uncertainty. You know, you know, you <laughs> yeah. no one's holding yeah. a gun to your head with this particular stock, and there might be yep. others out there that it's it's less challenging on.
1: Absolutely, yeah.
0: Um, but 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 within that, you you can also just add these margins of safety. So I, I you, mm-hmm. you might sort of look. Here's a really basic exercise. So what Kogan What seven hundred and something million in sales last year? Mm-hmm. Keep it simple. So uh, I think they'll grow at twenty percent for the next three years. Uh, the sales and you know I think you know given the nature of their business probably a 3% net, net margin it's pretty mm, decent mm. Um, I was pre- previously thinking a bit higher but you know, I'm a bit worried about supply chain costs and that so you know, edge it down edge, edge it down and then, you know that's three years out that's you know 40 million in net profit I don't know market probably be happy to pay 20 times that in normal circumstances 100 million dollars oh wait a sec mm. the market cap's now 570 There's there's mm. a very easy articulated line between there to between yep. there and now Um, Is it, is it right? (laughs) Well, well, (laughs) will sales grow that much? Will that be the margins? But, but, but whenever you're faced with these kinds of uncertainties, build a bit of flex into it. So, you you know, Mm -hmm. if if, I always think what's really attractive for me is when I can make a case for value with really pessimistic assumptions, because I don't know, but, but I've really tried to err on the side of caution. Maybe it won't be as bad as I think. And then the upside will be even greater, but even under more pessimistic scenarios, I can still articulate the case for value. So think about it and if unsure, just pull, pull it back and, and see if it still makes sense. And if it does, then
1: you've probably got something. Nice. Like that, mate. It's a really, really nice way to do it. So yeah, I think, I think that's, from a value aspect, I completely agree from a supply chain cost perspective. If a business has pricing power now, I, I, I don't see any reason for it to change. I'm more, I'm more about new competition. Well, less rational competitors. Mm. Um, I'm far, far, far more worried about the competitor response than the cost response because I just I think it's, you know, that's already worked into I, – I worked at businesses that we put the price of baked beans and whiskey and coffee up at different times mm. and didn't hurt sales because yeah. the retailers passed it on, the consumer was prepared to pay it, it was all fine. And that was that – was, you know, there was cost inflation then. Uh, I don't expect to be too different. Can I tell you, there's a bit of a, a uh, tangent
0: here. Go um, for it. I um, like I, tangents. I, I really like – as a theme, investing early in structural change. Mm. Um, Just expand on that a bit. So think about the internet stocks in the the 2000s, (laughs) in the noughties, you know, and then the sort of the SaaS stocks in the 2010s. These kind of things, you get to a situation where the growth of the industry is so substantial Mm. that those competitive dynamics that you're talking about haven't yet come, aren't dominant factors. Because mm. there's just there's just so much demand for these things. There's so many unique solutions, new solutions. Yeah, yep. it's not a, it's not a feature, um, and you can do. There's some incredible gains there uh, to, to be had mm. in that. Where it where it gets more difficult is as those ma- industries mature. It's very much an S curve kind of shape. Mm. So nothing much mm. happens, then a hell of a lot happens, and then not much <laughs> happens again. And yeah, yeah. and it's when it's when those chips sort of land and things start to mature, that's very different dynamics. Investing in Google and the big US tech companies today is a very different proposition than it was 10, 15 years ago. doesn't mean they're not bad investments, but I think the mm-hmm. way you look at them and some of the concerns that you might have with them are very different today because it's not a wide open green pasture everywhere for where everyone can kind of win. So I think part of the... Just, just to elaborate a bit on what you're thinking there too, I think knowing where the industry is at, where the business fits within that industry... And how that's likely to sort of grow and evolve over the next five to 10 years is, is an
1: important part of, of the thinking. Yeah, we both said before, but growth covers a lot of valuation sins. And I think oh, in that case, so true. You, it's so so much easier to, to you know, get it roughly right if a business is growing. Uh, the slower it's growing, the more precisely correct your valuation has to be, which A, is harder slash impossible. And it just, it just means that your degree of difficulty goes up as, as a result. So that's, a, that's an important one. Yep, yep, yep. made a question on... Uh, I like this question, on uh, index participation. Uh, Cameron says, a question for the Motley Fool pod. Hey, guys, I'm a long-time listener. I really enjoy listening while on my Saturday morning run around One Tree Hill in Auckland, New Zealand. Do you know I've never been to New Zealand? Have you been to New Zealand? Oh, it's beautiful, yeah. I like Seriously, it's like three hours that way. I, I, I just have never been. I need to go. I love I it. I go. need to go back, yeah. Cameron, I'll look you up. I've owned a company, he says, for several years now. It's MA Financials, the name of the business. And have been pleased with its performance, both reported results and share price. Nice work, Cameron, looking at both of those things because they're super important. I recently realised that despite being larger than many other companies in the ASX 200, uh, MA Financial is not in the index. This made me dig deeper. I now understand that to get into the ASX 200, there are three criteria. Float adjusted market cap, two liquidity, and three being listed on the ASX. For the company, clearly three is okay, it's listed. I understand that the founders of MA Financial have some significant ownership holdings, which I'm guessing means it does not meet the criteria one, the float-adjusted market cap. And therefore, the liquidity in the stock seems to be a problem also. So here's my question. Does the S&P not have the same float-adjusting criteria? Because isn't Amazon, Facebook, and Google in the same situation? And following on from that, in what scenario would this change for MA Financial? Do the founders have to sell or are there other ways? Great question. Oh, uh, so <laughs> I don't know this,
0: the, the specifics of it, but yeah, they 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 look for this float-adjusted market cap. Float just sort of being the shares that are sort of out there and available to change. It comes back to the liquidity consideration mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. So I just had a quick look at MA Financial. So, very roughly, it looks like management and board own a third of the company. Mm-hmm. So it's 156 million odd shares outstanding, and yeah, they look like they own 60, 70 million or something like that. Mm, so th- yeah. that's that's why it's not in there. Um, is that a good reason for it to not be in there? Is there still one number? <laughs> I mean, again, this is this is what the index creators decide, um, yeah. but they do need to they do need to ponder those liquidity considerations because a lot of people track them, um, and it's it's no point adding something to the index where there's just not going to be enough volume to soak up
1: soak up demand. Correct. Um, it also means if they're not very liquid, they the, the share price can be more volatile just because fewer people trade them. So you can't, both of those, you can't you can't buy in and follow along, yep. but it also doesn't necessarily indicate the movement of the market because it kind of distorts the movements because they trade irregularly or when they do trade, they, they move in big amounts, which just doesn't represent the underlying value. It's so, more totally. the structure of the, the holding. Yep. Here's the other thing though. Who
0: cares? <laughs> you know, it, so you've got like... <laughs> If I'm Warren Buffett and I've got ten You're billion dollars man. to invest, okay, that's that stuff. You know, I'm me. I'm not <laughs> investing with those kinds of money. Yeah. Uh, MA Financial has more than enough liquidity. We're, we're only a little mm. bit over an hour through the day's trade, mm. and nine hundred thousand dollars worth of shares has already traded hands. Mm. Um, so, <laughs> you know what I mean? It's kind of like I, I, I. I know it's just like a, a intellectual question based on curiosity mm. so I'm not, mm-hmm. not trying to put anything into the listener's mind here yeah, but, yeah, yeah. but I just, I feel that these index constituents they get, they get a lot more commentary than they deserve like we, we, had, yeah. we had the S&P rebalance a bunch of indexes on um, indices on, on the ASX recently mm-hmm. so you get these announcements saying oh we've been added or removed and what does that mean <laughs> is everyone going to sell because of this like, eh. yeah. there might be some short term thing but it's just really a nothing on a nothing in the grand scheme of things yep. Yep. For, me, for me personally so an interesting question but don't worry about it
1: yeah, it is. It is a, a very good question. Um, but yes, I also agree. Don't worry about it. <laughs> it's, it's it's largely immaterial. Um, I mean, yeah, I think I think there are some people who will speculate on the next company to be added to the index and try and buy it. And you know, there's there's some. I don't want to say there's a basis to it because I think it's a waste of time. But you can imagine a scenario where a company gets added to the ASX 200, the index funds have to buy, and a lot of funds have their own self-imposed mandates. We only buy stocks in the ASX 200. Mm. And so, you, can abs- I, you know, I absolutely understand a, a, a view which is, hey, wouldn't it be nice to own a company with it's kind of a little more a little more covered? Uh, maybe he's got more buying potential because, you know, a, f- a company that only covers the ASX 200 can't buy this in the business no matter how much they love it. Mm. It's literally not allowed to because the mandate is to ASX 200 only. So, well, bugger, I guess. Um, so, you may, yeah, I understand, I understand the question, Cameron, and, but to Andrew's point, I don't think it's super relevant. In terms of uh, the S&P 500, just to answer that question, they they have their own specific criteria by index, and it will it will be different based on the market itself and the index and in the company. And what I mean by that is, you know, a, a different. Um, Amazon and MA Financial are very different in sizes. So it's Facebook, right? So uh, in terms of this, the sheer number of shares available, the, the, the way the market operates too, if there's simply more activity on the US markets, probably, frankly, algorithmic buying and you know, computers doing it, but if there is more liquidity, it's possible there are more shares traded even on the same uh, exposed float, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. So you kind of got that, well, that combination. Over. So it, yeah, it matters. It Turnover, right, exactly. The number of shares sold a day is, is liquidity. So it can be different. Uh, the other thing I would say is that uh, Amazon, Facebook, and Google don't have the same concentration of ownership as MA Financial. I'd say there's there's that as well. Mm. Um, so just, but, just be just be mindful of that. I just Go think
0: on. I you know I'm not actually familiar with the business, but
1: um, I, I always John Molus Australia, I think. Do you remember them? Oh, is it okay? If I value value based fund manager, yeah, yeah. I'm just thinking though, like
0: all else being equal, if I had a choice between mm-hmm. a company that had um, more liquidity but very small inside mm-hmm. ownership, and mm-hmm. and and one that was the opposite, so mm. not as much liquidity and, and free float, but but massive yeah. insider ownership. I'm going to go the latter yeah. any day yeah. of the week. You know, yeah. like the, maybe that maybe the people running this aren't, aren't super capable or reliable or whatever. I'm not saying they're not, by the way. But you know they're trying. You know they're going to try. <laughs> they have got a lot of their <laughs> they money. Care a lot. They exactly. care yeah. a lot. And yeah. I just think it's just. I know. It, yeah. it, 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 I think it does get a little bit overdone as a factor yeah. to use that yeah. as a term. But at the same time, again, all else being equal. I would, I really, I really like when management holds a huge chunk of the company. Me too,
1: mate. Um, last one from Chrissy. Uh, it's literally just come in, Chrissy. You have snuck under the uh, under the door, what is the, under the post, under the something. What do you duck under? Duck under uh, the, whatever through whatever the gate. Later. I don't know. <laughs> whatever. Yeah, you just made it. You just made it in time. Past the post. Uh, there you go, uh, Chrissy. says, a question for the pod. Amazon has this morning announced a twenty for one stock split. I've heard from some sources that this doesn't mean that a company's value has grown. It just introduces hype to make it more attractive. Would love for you to discuss it for us that are still learning about investing. I've said lots of times I own Amazon shares and I do. I'll I'll grab this one around because I was across this news this morning as it came out. Not sure if you've seen it yet. No. Amazon have announced a $10 billion stock buyback. Uh, They think the shares are cheap. They're buying back shares, at least in theory. That's what they're supposed to do. And they're splitting the stock 20 for one. So for every share you've got, you will now end up with 20 shares and they will each be worth 1 of the price. So your ownership interest doesn't change. We've used the pizza analogy so many times for those who've been around for a while. Uh, if I said, here's a pizza, it's $20. And I said, oh, no, actually what I'm doing, I've, I've cut the pizza in 20, I'm now selling it for a dollar a slice. Mm. The pizza is still the same value. There's simply more slices. The price per slice is 1 20th, uh, but there's no change to the fundamental underpinning value of the business. I completely agree, Chrissy, with what you've heard, which is it makes no difference whatsoever. I personally think it's a complete waste of time and effort and energy. Uh, often companies do it to try and seem cheaper because there's that thing about, we talked about investor sentiment before. Uh, would you rather buy a $3,000 stock or a $150 stock? You and I know, Chrissy, that if that's the Amazon story, the things are exactly the same. I own Amazon, so I'm going to own at some point 20 times as many shares, each worth 120th of the price. So my three thousand dollars share is now worth one hundred and fifty dollars. Makes no difference to me. Would, would I would I rather own one or the other? Well, no. I, I, I'm happy to own one three thousand dollars share or twenty one hundred fifty dollars shares because it's the same thing. Makes mm. zero difference. It's mm. a complete mess and and it's window dressing at best. I love Jeff Bezos. I love Amazon. I think this is stupid. Now I will say, despite having said it's stupid, there is one area that I think is has a little bit of value to it, and that is that there are things like employee incentive schemes and buying a share, just you need to have three thousand dollars rather than buying a share for 150 bucks. So it does to some degree impose a minimum investment amount on a company shares. If I want to buy some Amazon, I gotta find three grand. In future I can find $150 and build my position more slowly. And so there is some there is some validity to that. It's limited validity because particularly these days on US brokerages in particular, you can buy fractional shares anyway. So I could I could buy on my current broker, one twentieth of an Amazon share for 150 bucks, I could have done that now. Uh, so I think I think largely 99.483% of the argument for splitting shares is stupid. Uh, there is that little bit which is kind of real. If you're giving employees, um, you know, incentive shares, or you're, you know, you're you're wanting people to get involved in the in the in the shares and be able to afford them, there is some there is a little bit of value to that. Splitting a five-dollar stock into five one-dollar shares is stupid. I guess if your shares are three thousand dollars, you can kind of make an argument to say. Let's split that. Apple have done the same thing in the past. I don't own Apple, so I can, I can talk about that without being biased. I think it's stupid for them to split their shares too. But does it make it a little more accessible in just in absolute dollar terms? I guess. Yeah. Uh, but the rest of the time, it's rubbish, as you say.
0: Well, I'm surprised you didn't mention the ultimate example here, which is Berkshire Hathaway. I, was so, gonna, I, I thought I'd leave the one line, but go for it. it was, so it's 490000 let, let me put it this way. Last night, one Berkshire Hathaway, a share, increased yeah. in value by 10220 US dollars. <laughs> It's like Australian housing. One, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, it happens every day. Your house is worth ten thousand dollars more. That's right. That's right. Um, but so, because it's four hundred ninety thousand dollars, I can't buy a Berkshire Hathaway <laughs> share, right? And so, and so I think it, there there is a point where it does make a bit of sense. Right. Um, yep. Yeah. But but other yeah. than that, it's it's so crazy. And why do they do it? Because it works. Yeah. Because it works. Why do we all charge nineteen ninety <laughs> instead of twenty dollars? Because it yeah. works, it's stupid. Yeah, yeah it's a, yeah. example number four hundred and eighty nine of stupid things that we do <laughs> that we know are stupid, but we do anyway. But work
1: exactly. It works. It yeah,
0: works. It really so, it so really is does. it stupid for Amazon to do it? Probably not.
1: <laughs> not, not really. You know, more Except pe- that I don't want management. Worrying about the share like the only thing that worries me about all this thing is, for all of that, all the cost and effort and hassle and whatever, is just going to push the share price up another maybe half a percent and seem more attractive to people. It's like, does it work? Yeah. Do I really want? Like honestly, yeah. If Jeff said to me, mate, I've got a list of uh, 48 things that I think will really grow the value of Amazon. What I'm going to spend time on is splitting the shares. I'm like, dude, yeah. for the love of God, go and do some work. Yeah. You know, yeah. like uh, it, it works. Yes. Do I, is that what I really want? Any management spending time on? No, Tim Cook at Apple, dude. Walk we'll out of that meeting when the, when the investment bank says, "You know what we should do, Tim? Split the shares." You're like, "Dude, I, I've got i got important things to do. I've got a, I've got a new iPhone to release. I'm not going to waste time talking about things that might move the share price." Oh slightly. well, the investment bankers aren't doing it for free. That's the thing that rubs <laughs> yeah, sticks exactly. in my craw more than anything else. So <laughs> correct, that's what which is why they which is why they do it, right? Yeah, yeah. Push let's, go pay, on, let's go and talk to the guys at Amazon and see if I can get them to split their shares. Uh, PushPay did a share a four for one
0: split. You know.
1: Uh, it wasn't it was, it was less than ten bucks a share.
0: I can't remember what it was. yeah now. It's yeah a bit yeah. a rough ride, but, but but what's what a ridiculous waste of time. when well, oh. thousands of dollars per share, okay <laughs> yeah, as you say, anything anything under less than a couple hundred bucks
1: uh, just yeah. there's no point to it. I, yeah, so I really I really kept, like you know Berkshire and finally Berkshire actually did they had there's a B class share of Berkshire shares, which are much cheaper, and that was actually done originally because people were creating back in the pre-ETF days and pre fractional shares days there are actually businesses out there that were creating Berkshire kind of um, managed funds and saying, you can't afford a Berkshire share, come and invest in our fund and we'll do it. And they yep. would basically getting a clip and Buffett said, hey, <laughs> you've yep. got to screw on my shareholders and you, you're you know, messing the message up here. I'll do it for you. If you're going to do it, I'll do it instead. Yep. Uh, so he, he has actually created a new class of share as well as that $488,000 one. Uh, but for everything else... If it's affordable for an individual investor, a couple hundred bucks. I mean, geez, if, you, if you're not trading a couple hundred bucks at a time, you're probably need to think about what you're buying. You're probably need to buy an ETF instead, just for your own sake. Just, um, but yeah,
0: just quietly, he might have to. He might have to do Berkshire Hathaway B, a C shares
1: soon because the, the B, yeah, the B shares
0: to, are three hundred and thirty bucks each or something. And they crazy. It. Yeah. It, doesn't,
1: it doesn't take much. It doesn't take much. Anyway, uh, that but a really good question, Chris. I'm glad you asked. I'm glad we had a chance to rant about it because it's one of the things that drives me completely nuts. Uh, when you can value, when you can focus on value creation, and you see your place silly buggers with share prices, uh, worth having a worth having a look and a think. I reckon
0: you got you got to be. I'll give you a very quick example of, sort of similar on. like that. So we a company I've got some shares in called Ava Risk Group. Had a mm. they sold a big the big part of their business and they they gave the cash back to shareholders. So okay. you got it got shares that were sort of 40 something cents that paid a 16 cent dividend. Right. You know, so so on the day you watch the chart. Here's the chart. Yeah, Merrily right, going and then course. whack, I, like, price whoa, I forgot <laughs> about the X State. And I just sort of opened up my account, like, what the hell? Shares are down 28%. What's going on? Yeah. Nothing's gone on. You know, I've just got, I just, I got I got a bunch of cash and the, the rest in shares, and it adds up to, to the same that I had before. So you've got you to watch out for these things.
1: Which, by the way, I'm going to quickly add to your ad, which is just be careful when you look at share price charts and that sort of stuff because the higher yielding companies will have lower share price gains because they're giving out the money rather than keeping it. Yeah. And so that's kind of, you know, uh, Andrew, if you look at that stock price it's in a year's time, someone will say to Andrew, mate, this has gone nowhere. It's like, dude, I got half the value in in cash. Like, it's you know the, the price has gone nowhere. Sure, but again, as investors, back to the discounted cash flow thing. We don't you don't you're not just making money on the share price, right? Yeah. So, I get that. Do, do you ignore rent on your investment property? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Why would you? My my biggest bugbear is, and this is, I'm not going to rant for long, but the uh, when people talk about the the, the you know the share market is up five percent over the last year, they only look at the price. They never ever include ever on the news. I don't get asked about it. We don't talk about it. There's no evil, easy available index to cover it, which is also a travesty. Um, but the average stock market gain in Australia is about 10% a year, give or take. Dividends are about half of that. And yet if you look at a share price chart, so like, oh, the share market's only up 5% a year. What a terrible return. It's like, well, does that include dividends? Oh, I don't know. Drives me nuts, mate. Yeah. Absolutely nuts. Yeah, yep. Yeah. So well, we're running no. out of time, but there's there's no. other
0: examples of this you gotta <laughs> go be careful. The, the one it's, is it Webjet? Um where Yes. So in the in COVID,
1: yes, great they example.
0: they they had to issue a bunch of sh- a lot of new shares. Doubled just, the share count. They doubled their share count. Yeah. So when you look at it here again, it's just a trap for young players. You 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 open up your Comsec account or Yahoo Finance and you look at it and you go, oh yep. well before the pandemic you know, shares are about 10 bucks a share. Now they're $5 a mm. share. The company's lost half mm. of its value. Uh, no, actually, it's back to where it was. Yeah. Because it's only $5 something a share now, but there's twice as many shares. And yet it looks. Mm. Yeah, so it's deceptive. You, you've got, this is why market cap is something that gets talked a lot. It's, it's more useful than the share price. What is mm. the, market cap, just the number of shares times the share what's the What's the total market value of the company? A far more useful uh, indicator than... than mm. Share price is just arbitrary
1: based on the number of units. Back to the pizza. So true. So, exactly, exactly. And with that, we will go back and have some lunchtime pizza this Sunday. May thank you for spending some time with us. If you like the show, please tell your friends. Please give us a five-star rating on your podcast machine if you would be so kind. We'd very much appreciate it. It helps people find the, uh, the podcast and frankly, we like to feel good too. So if you like us, we'd like some stars. If you don't, We we need our egos massaged. (laughs) (laughs) We are nothing if not needy, needy people. (laughs) But until next Friday, we're going to be needy on our own behalf. But we will be back next Friday with another episode of Motley for Money. And until then, full on. See you then.